We're so grateful, and I just want to encourage you again, if you're in a place, you're starting to say, you know, where can I make a difference? Really pray about it, because God wants to use you to make a difference in someone else's life. He's given you some food or money in that sense to be able to share with others. He's given you abilities in the heart that he wants to have you invest to make a difference. Let's pray together. Father, I would just ask that you would take this time. I, I really do pray, Father, that you would take these words that I've been just dwelling and thinking about and working through and that I believe you've been leading me in and use these words, God, to be more than words but to be your spirit in a very real sense that hearts would be open and that, God, you would come. Spirit of God, you would move and cause each of us to be awakened to you in a new way that we would want to become more like you and become like you in your faith and in your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to give you some names, and I'm going to ask you in a moment what you, what's the connection between them. George and the Dragon, Parlor, Ice House, Burl, Northeast Social, Lake and Irving, Piccolo, Muddy Waters. Anybody have any idea what those are? Restaurants, bars, are the things, are the trendy places in the Minneapolis area. And if you know where they're at, you have more than just a knowledge of the trends. You are preoccupied with food. Because um, we are kind of preoccupied with food. As a you can go to all kinds of different places, go to different malls, you go to different places, you go down to downtown Wyzetta these days, and there's just more and more restaurants coming up, and it's just amazing to me how much we value food, right? It's really interesting when I was thinking about this message and I, and I was thinking even of our ministries. In our ministries, we value food greatly. We actually have this imaginatively named ministry called the Caring Ministry. It does a lot of different things. Some of you know Dee Sandberg is kind of overseas and, and is involved in that and has just an incredible job over the years. But um, one of the things that's really interesting to me, one of the ways that we care, in fact, one of the ways we care quite often is through food. It, it, whether it's an illness, a hospital stay, a newborn that is among us, and it will be if you experience a death, it's interesting how we come and we care with food because we understand food is a basic staple, right? And we also, no matter what's going on in life, we have to eat. And so we come around people with food and we care for them with food. There's something interesting about this, though. If you, in some way, find yourself losing your appetite for food, that's kind of a warning sign to some degree. Now, some of you will be happy about that because, you know, maybe you're losing some weight. But if you do that for too long, it's a, it can be a, a, a thing that should wake you up. This past summer, um, we had a dog, Lila, who lived for quite some time. And besides her getting very feeble and, and arthritis and stuff, one of the things that I would notice is just she had a, a, her, a decreased appetite for food. And it's a sign of either illness or a sign of impending death, that kind of thing. The other aspect of that, too, is if you have an absence of hunger. Okay, You have no appetite for food. You need to be worried about that. Because it's, it's a really a known fact that dead people don't eat, Right? And if you don't eat, you're not going to be alive. Spiritual health is evidenced by a hunger for spiritual food. And spiritual death is evidenced by no hunger for spiritual food. And so Jesus, as we've been looking at these Beatitudes, disrupts things by coming along with each of these Beatitudes, disrupting the way we might normally think. And he comes to this fourth one and he starts talking about our hunger and our thirst. Because I think what he wants us to do is to pay attention to 
our appetite, not just for physical food, but spiritual food. And here's a really good question to ask yourself. What kind of appetite do I have for spiritual food? Kind of in a moment of quietness, maybe just this morning, if you still your heart and your soul, ask yourself, do you have any spiritual hunger pangs at all? And just how spiritually hungry are you? How spiritually thirsty are you for God? And do you even have a spiritual appetite? Because if you don't have a spiritual appetite, spiritually dead people have no hunger for God. They don't need to eat, which may just say that you have no place for God in your heart and your life. Maybe you haven't been born like these newborns, because every newborn actually has a natural hunger for food, right? And any person who has come to a place where they have been born again in that sense where the Spirit of God enters in their life, begin to have a spiritual hunger. And if you have an absence of it, then you need to ask yourself. You may need to ask yourself, do I know God? And if you have a really weak appetite for the things of God, you may need to ask yourself, what's suppressing it? Why am I not hungry? So Jesus gives this Christian manifesto. He speaks to people on a number of different occasions, I think early in his ministry, because these Christian, this, what we call Christian manifesto is kind of his basic charter for if you're going to be a follower of me, this is what it looks like. This is the characteristic of who you are. This is what God does in the heart of a person who is blessed. And he's not in the sense of manifestos that have been written, whether it's communism or some other kind of manifesto. He's not thinking of some kind of political revolution. He's talking about a personal revolution. He's talking about a revolution that begins in your character. When it begins in your character, it changes who you are, and then it changes everything that is around you. It should change. I mean, if if you're a person who's growing in your spiritual hunger, it should change um, your relationship with the person that you're married to or or someone who you're dating, or or it will change the relationship of your close friendships. It will change the relationship where you work. It will have an impact because of what is happening within your soul. So Jesus gave these Beatitudes. And I'm going to ask us to stand together because you've been sitting for a long time and hearing people talk to you. So I would like for you to kind of engage for a moment, and I would like for us to say these Beatitudes together, because these are the words that Jesus said, and when Jesus said them, they were disruptive. They forced people to have to think about their lives and how they're living. Let's say these together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Thank you. You may be seated. The roadmap this morning is really pretty simple. We're going to look at basically three stopping points along the way, and they are going to be kind of consumed by these words, or or they are going to be marked by these words, preoccupied progression and practice. We're going to talk about being preoccupied. All these have to do with hunger and thirst, the idea of, of the progression of this hunger, and then we're going to talk about the practice, and I hope will be very practical because I'm going to be asking you at the end to be thinking about writing your own beatitude. So what is so disruptive about this beatitude? As I begin to think about it, is, is you think about the first three that Jesus gives. They were really disruptive. They, you know, this whole idea of poverty, you know, being spiritually bankrupt, this idea that it's blessed are you who are bankrupt. Well, that would kind of gets your attention, because no one here really wants to be bankrupt. 
Blessed are those of you who are at a funeral and who are mourning, because really, we don't really desire funerals. Blessed are those of you who are meek. Now, we don't like meekness because meekness implies some sense of weakness. And we learned last week that's not really the truth. But that's what was in their mind. And, and now he gives this one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And, and, and what's, what he's saying in here is, is the disruptive part isn't the analogy where he uses this idea that your hunger and thirst for food, which he compares to spiritual food, physical food for spiritual food, that's not the, the disruptive nature of this. In fact, if you go through the Word of God, you can find from the very beginning how God is always using the concept of food and water as a way of understanding that as you physically need to eat and drink, so also your soul, your spirit needs to be filled with God. It needs to be filled with the truth of God. It needs to be filled with the spirit of God. That you need to be in that kind of relationship. So this wasn't really new for them. In fact, if you go back to Moses, you'll find that, that Moses, when he is to lead the people out of Israel, he takes the people who are captive in Egypt and he brings them through and God parts the sea which is an experience of, of, of salvation in a sense. There's a sense where God is saying, you couldn't do this on your own. You don't have the ability to be good enough through your own efforts, whatever. I have to do this for you, which is what the cross is all about, that Jesus came and he took our sins and he says, it's not up to you, it's up to me. I have to be the one that saves you. And when a person is humbled and understands that bankrupt place before God, they are open to him. So he brings them through this, which is very important because it shows spiritual progression. You can look at the Exodus experience as not just some things that happen to the people of God, but it really mirrors what it means to live with God throughout your life. The idea that you come to a place where you have an appetite because the Spirit is born in you. You go through this, this parting of the seas, and then as you walk along, you see that God is teaching Moses and the children of God the appetite through their physical appetite of how they are to be hungry and thirsty for God. So as they, just, they get done going through the sea, and, and in my mind, they're celebrating. It's almost like, an, you know, like those end zone celebrations. They almost got penalized for excessive celebration. I mean, they're just going crazy. You see the songs they're singing. And then the next thing you read is in chapter 15, verse 21. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. And for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And we're told they began to complain. They come to a place called Mara. They find water. It's bitter, and they start to complain. And then God provides water. And then as you go along, you see in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, the whole Israelite community set out and came to the desert of Sin, and there in the desert, the whole community grumbled. And I just have to say, um, the reality is, excessive grumbling shows an ungrateful spirit. Excessive complaining and grumbling also shows immaturity because what we're seeing here is they come through in this whole progression as they go through to the promised land is that God is bringing them to a place of maturity where they're in a sense they move into this land where their character has been developed. And so what you see is God is seeking to help them understand that they need to eat and they need to drink. So they get in chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. They come to this place. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve to death. And God says, I'm going to train you just like you need physically to eat and how I can provide for you physically. He provides manna and quail. And all this is to teach them a simple lesson, which he sums up in Deuteronomy chapter 8, was they're standing at the, at the, at the um, entrance into the promised land. 
He says in Deuteronomy 8, Moses encourages them with this word. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. One of the things that God does that I've learned in my own life is that when you go through a time of testing, that testing is God's way of saying what's inside you. It's a wonderful thing in many ways because what comes out is what you go, ooh, that's it. You know, we like to do that. So, you know, like when that comes out, we kind of go, well, that wasn't really me. And they go, baloney, that was you. So you might be in one of those situations where God is just testing you, not because he doesn't love you, because he wants you to see what's in your heart so he can begin to feed you and cause you to hunger and thirst on him so that he can build something into your life. That when you do go through a testing, it comes out different. It looks like God. And so he humbled you, causing you to hunger, he says, then feeding you with manna to teach you. Here's what the lesson was, to teach you. So here's, here's the analogy. The analogy is not, the, the, the disruptive part of it isn't that, that food and water is analogous and, and, and this is some new aha moment. Oh yeah, that's like spiritual food. He says, to teach that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus, later on, when he goes through his own wilderness experience, he says to Satan, as he's been tempted to take stones and turn them into bread, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the point is, to live physically, we need food and water, and he was teaching them that as children, so that we could look into that and also see that he was teaching them that they needed to fill their soul with the things of God. They needed the Spirit of God. They needed to live in such a way. And we get so messed up with that in our world today. And we somehow think that if we just get enough money, we get the right title, we get the right job, we get in the right place, we get the right spouse, we get the right person, whatever it is. That somehow if we get that, that's going to fill us. And Jesus says, no, blessed are those who what hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the things of God. That is the living in a right relationship with God with one another. They are the kind of people whose souls will be filled. And so the point throughout this whole thing, you can read it in the Old Testament, you can read it in the Gospels. I have all kinds of scripture here. Psalm 42, the psalmist speaks about it in a couple of different places using this bread and water idea. Isaiah and 41, chapter 41, 17 and 18. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, come to me, you are thirsty. Those of you who don't have bread to buy. Jesus uses this analogy of hunger and thirst. He stands with a woman at the well, and the woman at the well, he says, you know what, you can drink this water, but guess what, you'll be thirsty again. I give you something that will never cause you to thirst, and from it will come streams of living water as you begin to depend, and you begin to find your life in me. And then when the disciples come back, they can't believe it because they went to get lunch, and they see Jesus, and, and, and they ask him about whether he's eaten, and Jesus, in a sense, says, I have food that you know nothing about. They think, well, did someone bring him a lunch? You know, was there a McDonald's near here or something? And then Jesus says, guess what, guys? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what I feed upon. And then throughout his ministry, Jesus did this. He talked about, I'm the bread of life. You'll never be thirsty if you believe in me. One time in the temple courts, he stands up in one of the high festival days and he says with a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And so this analogy is not something disruptive and new. What is disruptive is the preoccupation that comes with hunger and thirst, right? That's what disrupted them. There is more than a desire. There is a passion to the point of preoccupation with your hunger. In fact, one commentator says the words for hunger and thirst are not gentle words. They're disruptive words. There is a hunger to the point of starvation. There is a thirst to the point of dehydration. 
It's when your hunger kind of begins to get a hold of you, and that's what you think about. Anybody ever heard of the word hangry? Anybody ever been hangry? It's the combination of hunger and anger. It's like when someone's with you and, and you're not being real civil and you kind of are short and, and you know, those kind of things, and they go, are you hangry? Because you start being the kind of person who is preoccupied with the hunger and with it becomes a desire to get it, right? It's amazing what happens to a person when they begin to pay attention to their hunger and their hunger then becomes something that preoccupies them. There is a funeral I did this last Friday for Susan Wirtz. They're, they're a new family, kind of in the last four years they've come to our church, Art and Susan Wirtz, and Susan is from, uh, from China, and her family and her father, Cheng Chu Shan, was from China. He came in 2000, and I did the funeral this Friday. It was in the fireside room, and it was one of those funerals where I would speak a sentence, and then this Chinese person would interpret for me, Dr. Yuli. It was really... A really neat and amazing experience. But one thing that's really interesting is that Cheng Chu and his father and family came through this whole time when China was going through this great upheaval. Prior to World War II, um, there was all this uh, movement that was happening, not just around communism, but these overthrow of the whole government in many different ways. And the history is really interesting and fascinating when you read it. But what you find out what happened in that time was that people who had wealth, people who had some kind of status, people who in, in some way maybe or owners of, of factories or different things like that, people who had some alliance with the stability politically and militarily, they were the people that when they had this revolution begin to start taking place, they were thrown out of their homes and they were sent to camps. And his father, Cheng Chu's father, died in one of those. Cheng Chu himself went to a place on the Yangtze River where he had to help um, build, I think, a dam or different things and, and permanently injured himself. And he was this very brilliant man, but he lost everything. And what people don't realize is when that cultural revolution took place, when, when they went through that time of the cultural revolution, there were times of great famine where people died because they couldn't get food. And here's what did she writes about her, her dad, Chang Chu, and how he loved her daughter, Susan, and his granddaughter, Amelia. She writes, he took great pride helping me raise Amelia. He doted on her and indulged her every whim. He often waited patiently with a spoon. And I thought, well, this is interesting when I'm reading this. With a spoon, well, okay? Every time when Amelia opened her mouth, a spoonful of food went in. Now pay attention to this next line. Living through famine and food shortage scared him. He would do all he could to ensure that she had enough to eat. He had a preoccupation with the necessity of food physically. Jesus is saying something here that is disruptive, that people whose character is such that they live with this preoccupation of wanting to live in the conscious presence of God will be blessed. I mean, if you're like me, I like to live way in the future, or you, know, you get caught in the past and you won't let go of your guilt. And so you live in these two places, you don't live in the presence of God. There's this hunger for this presence and this, this preoccupation with God. And Chang Chu was passionate about food. You could say he was preoccupied. Not having it left him afraid. It, it, it controlled him, like the hangry sensation that you might have. There's a story by Louis Samparini in Unbroken, and some of you have seen the movie and read the book. 
His plane goes down to the Pacific Ocean on May 27, 1943, and he spends 47 days stranded at sea on a life raft. They sail for quite some time, and a few of them actually die out of starvation and dehydration, and they finally come to the Marshall Islands, and as they drift there from some 2,000 miles, they drift. Over that time, he talks about this incessant hunger and thirst that they had. He says at one point, this is right in the very beginning, in an act of panic, tail gunner Mac McNamara ate all the chocolate bars, approximately six, as the other men slept in the two rafts during the first night. And the, this ruined Louis's plan to allot each man one square of chocolate in the morning and one in the evening, which would last them for a few days. At one point he said Mac had lost his wits within even that first day and he was crying out, we're going to die. And Louis had a slap in the face to bring him to alertness and to his senses. And Louis was disappointed, he says, because Mac, in, you know, because of the chocolate, but Louis in his mind figured, well, you know, they'll be rescued soon. Well, that didn't happen. And hunger and thirst continued to be the constant threat. He says at one point... Early on, the men killed an albatross that landed on the raft. At this point, they weren't starving. They were preoccupied with their hunger, but not starving. They cut it open, and the stench was so bad that they couldn't get the meat into their mouths without gagging. Instead, they used it as bait to catch small fish. And then he says, not long after that, now they're at a place where they're preoccupied. They need to eat. And he says, an albatross landed again, and I... And, and I told the guys, we got to try to eat it. This one, we devoured it like a hot fudge sundae. You know, it was just delicious. I think of another man as I was thinking of these conditions of, of the soul when you are in a starving place. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Russian author before the Iron Curtain came down. He was imprisoned in the northern parts of Siberia. And he was in this camp of, of, of political prisoners. And he writes this. He says they were actually thankful for minus 19 degree weather because at least when it was that warm, they could lay bricks and work. So guys, buck up. <laughs> Solzhenitsyn, when asked about life in prison, said this. The thoughts of a prisoner, they're not free. They keep returning to the same things. A single idea keeps stirring. Would the guards, he said, feel that piece of bread that I hid in the mattress? And he wrote this. The bowl of soup, it was, it was dearer than freedom, dearer than life itself, past, present, and future. The belly is a demon. It doesn't remember how well you treated it yesterday. It'll cry out for more tomorrow. The belly is an ungrateful wretch. It never remembers past favor. It always wants more tomorrow. I think what Jesus is saying about this preoccupation is at the heart of a person who is drawn in that character where they have come to the place of spiritual bankruptcy and they begin to mourn and understand how their hurt and their sin and their actions cause others and then they begin to understand that meekness needs to be tempered in that way. They also have this heart that says, God, I need you. I want you to be present. I want you to live with me. I Just like when I eat and when I drink, I want my life to be regulated by you. I read an, another guy, Robert Hastings, recalls an experience of, of just a fear of hunger. 
He says, the heaviest snowfall on record blanketed the city of Chicago in January of 1967. Near panic broke out in, the, in some of the food stores. The Associated Press said that shoppers, sh- they, sh- they shoved, ran, grabbed, cursed, pushed, and knocked others out of the way to get food supplies. Because people will steal, lie, beg, fight, and even kill from your breadcrumbs. And you'll give whatever you can for a drop of water. You'll resort to unthinkable depths for a bite of food. Nothing is as important as eating and drinking. And this is what he says was disruptive. You want God no matter what it costs. I just ask you to really think for a moment. Have you ever felt that kind of hunger for God? Has your soul ever been that dry? And maybe it is, that parched and thirsty right now, where you say, God, I really want you in my life. I really need you in my life. Have you ever ached and longed for God and his righteousness? This beatitude forces you to look at what you most desire. It actually disrupts you so you honestly ask what preoccupies your mind. So think about it for a second. What is it that you live with that is really the preoccupying thought of your mind? And I'm not coming down like I got this together, okay? We're all human. What he's actually saying is the person who wants to live in a blessed life lives with an understanding that we in this life, because of the way our culture is, can become preoccupied with the things of this world. What is it that preoccupies our heart and our mind such that we are regulated by this understanding that we want to live in the consciousness of God, in his presence? It, in a sense, gives us a preoccupation with his being involved in our lives. Jesus says to the degree that you are preoccupied with spiritual food and with him. In one sense, is the degree you'll be filled. So now this progression. There's a progression in these Beatitudes, which I think is really interesting, because if we, you go from each one to the next, it, it, it actually is um, a way of disrupting you. The reason he puts these in order is there's a logical um, connection to each one of them. And it's, it's the idea that as you read these, so that you don't take them in isolation alone, it's good that we study them in isolation, but when you take them in order and you see how they're moving, what they have the ability to do is to keep you and your heart and your soul into, going into this downward, downward kind of death spiral spiritually. And so the progression is disruptive. John Stott says in the Christian Counterculture, in a book, he says, we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression of relentless logic. To begin with, we are poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's just that knowledge that you go, God, I can't through my efforts, through my own moral ability, through my own strength, I can't do what needs to be done to gain your acceptance. It's a recognition that you don't have what it takes. And then in that state, he goes, it's next we are to mourn over the cause of it, our sins, yes, even our, our sin too, the corruption of our fallen nature and the reign of sin and death in the world. There's this understanding that I recognize, not only don't have what it takes, but I realize that my sin and the corruption of my own human nature is that which separates me from you. And then third, he says, we're meek humble and gentle toward others, allowing our spiritual poverty, which has been both admitted and bewailed, to condition our behavior to others as well as to God. And here's where the fourth one comes in. When we come to that place and we understand that, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what is the use of confessing and lamenting our sin 
of acknowledging the truth about ourselves, both to God and men, if we leave it there. Confession of sin must lead to a new place, a hunger for righteousness, a desire to walk with God. And so he, 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 he gives us this progression, um, which is disruptive in and of itself. Augustine said it this way, and I think it's kind of interesting. He, he, when he was, um, to, came to a place where he understood his need and he opened his heart to God, he began to kind of just look back at his life and he saw there's this progression of hunger. He said, um, and some of you might relate to this, he called it the stages of, with sin. His first one was this, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Right? God, I, 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 mean, you know, I want to follow you and I, you, know, you get me out of this mess, and, but you know, I still want to have, you know, do it my way. And then he said there's a second one, Lord, make me good, but not entirely. I mean, I'd like goodness to be about 80%, but there's about 20%. There's a whole room of closet places in my life that I just want to keep off limits, make me good, but not entirely. And he says in this progression, when you come to the understanding of the fullness of this whole thing, you move to this last place where you say, Lord, make me good. Do whatever you have to do in every area of my life. It begins to place in us a desire to turn from wrong and to turn to what is right. To know when there is evil, instead of combating it with our own evil reactions, we move into a place where we overcome it with what we know is good and loving. It means that we'll not drift in the way of our culture, but that we will actually actively take hold of God and say, God, I want to do and walk with you in such a way that as you begin to form my life and you make me a loving person, that in that process, this love will begin to transform other people around me. And you become preoccupied with that because this progression begins to happen in your heart. And it leads to the last thing I want to share with you, and that is a practice. I want you to think about this in the sense of um, this practice. Um, I would love for you to write a beatitude and be able to send it to me to think about, okay, what can I do? Because, you know, we're, we've entered into Lent and, you know, I'm not of a high tradition, so to speak, but Lent's a really important time. It's a time to kind of take focus and look at your life and say, what do you need to maybe put aside that's getting in the way, that's suppressing your appetite for God? What is it in your life that you may need to kind of starve in order that you might have more hunger for God? So, Kenzie, you're here, so I'll embarrass you anyway. We're driving in a car. And with my wife, my daughter, and my daughter says to us, so what are you guys going to give up for Lent? I didn't much thought to that. It was a few weeks back. And so as I'm kind of processing that, thinking about it, and trying to think about what I'm going to do, at one point, just a week or two ago, I'm, I had this tendency to rush. Anybody's, you know, anybody is that kind of person, always in a hurry kind of thing? Um, so here I am, I'm at home, I'm working on my message, and what I'll do is I'll work up to the last minute, in fact, sometimes go five minutes over, and then I'll just like, excuse me, i got to get going, Kenzie, i got to run. And she says to me, Dad, I'm going to challenge you to think about something. How about if you set your clock about 15 minutes before you think you need to go, and you kind of just live at that pace? And, you know, I said, shut up. You know, no, anyway, um... <laughs> And so God began to convict me, and I, I wrote a, a, a beatitude that I want to try and begin to live. And I would, you want to hold me accountable? I mean, that's one of the bad things about being a pastor. But um, blessed are those who go slow, for they will arrive well and in time. 
Because one of the things that I was thinking about this is about hurry and rush. Is I remembered uh, uh, Dallas Willard um, said in one of his books that I had been reading, he, he was t- someone came to him and said, you know, what must I do? If, if you were to say one thing I could do that would really change my life, would allow God to be more present, more, I'd be more preoccupied, so to speak, with him, so this progression could take place, so that I could practice really being a loving person. And he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because I've come to realize that when you are in a rush, in a hurry, you walk by people, you don't see people, you don't listen real well. You don't, you know, what's, it's really, in a sense, sometimes busyness is a badge for being really important. And you get all these things that go on in your heart, sometimes being rushed and, and busy is all about you, me. And so one of the things I really want to practice for the next six weeks, and then when I'm done, I can't wait. No, I'm just kidding. One day I want my character. Blessed are those who go slow, for they will arrive well and in time. And so I ask you to think about writing a beatitude. I'd love for you to send it to me in in my email here at the church. I'd love to get them from different people. But I'm going to challenge you. Here's a couple of things you could do, you could think about, maybe for you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn at one point wrote, Rejoice that you are in prison. Here you can think of your soul. So I thought, well, here's a beatitude that maybe Jesus could say to our day and age, blessed are those imprisoned by some rotten circumstance for in this place you can learn to rejoice in me alone. Or maybe you need another one. I was thinking in our culture today, we're so, so, so sleep-deprived, right? I thought, you know, you could, you know, rest in quiet. Some people have said some of the most spiritually important things you could do for yourself is just get sleep. Blessed are those who get eight hours of sleep. Well, that might be too much for you. Let's say even seven. Blessed are those who get seven hours sleep, for they will find rest in the Lord. What is the one thing that you could begin to practice through just this period of Lent that might allow for God to increase your hunger for him, to begin to allow your heart to become preoccupied and to move more fully into his presence?